Welcome to Moving On. Here you will get expert information, tips, and most importantly, the tools to moving on to a healthy, happy, and thriving life that you want to be living. Letting go of whatever is holding you back, whether you are in an unhealthy relationship or learning how to be in a healthy one, or maybe you are in a job that you've been dying to move on from, Learn to let go of what's holding you back and become the thriving, healthy, and happy person that is inside you. Welcome to Moving On. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Moving On, where I talk to an expert who is in a field that would be of interest to you, my audience, and talk about what their journey was, how they got here personally and professionally, and what's going on in their lives now, but really, how did they get here? What were the obstacles they overcame? And what had them decide to make a choice at some point that said, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go in a different direction or I've gotta go in this direction because there's some kind of meaning for me. So today I have with me Maho Molfino. Mm -hmm. well, <laughs> I got it right, right? You got it, Tracy. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let me tell you guys a little bit about her. And we'll just get into it after that. So Maho is the Latinx author of Break the Good Girl Myth, and it's coming out from Harper One. Or is it already out? Did it come out already? It's out. It's out on hardcover. Okay. Okay. Yeah, awesome. there it is. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So you guys know this, right? Host of the Heroin Podcast Designer and Women's Leadership Expert. Maho guides women toward more power and meaning through her unique blend of storytelling, design, psychology, and mindfulness. Her work can be seen through her podcast, which features women such as Sophia Amoroso. I hope I said her name right. I have a thing about saying people's names right, so. <laughs> I'm always going, okay, I wanna get that right. I don't know why, this must be from like elementary school, but anyway, and Byron Katie, and has had over 1 million downloads for her podcast. Her book, which helps women shed the good girl myths that patriarchy has imposed upon them, and her leadership program, Ignite. She also has a master's in learning design and technology from Stanford University and a bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in cultural studies from McGill University. So yay, this is, uh, this is gonna be fun, so welcome. Thanks, Tracy, thanks for inviting me to come on. I'm excited to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely, this is gonna be great. So I have, of course, a couple of questions because when we're growing up, it's not that most of us like i i wanted to be crossing guard when i was six and then i wanted to be a doctor by the time i was nine right mm -hmm. so when you were a little kid what was it that you aspired to do what was the thing that you thought god i want to do that when i get older mm -hmm. well it's funny you asked that because the other day my mom sent a picture of my report card from like fourth grade you know in our whatsapp group and uh in it it said like you know you know in the yearbook they ask you like what do you want to be when you grow up and uh, I said lawyer. And what was funny was that she was a lawyer. Or she, she got her law degree in Argentina. Um, and so I think I wanted to be what my parents were, either a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> so, you know, I inherited this idea that I needed to do a conventional career or job very early on. Now, that was probably when I was around 10 years old. Before that, it's possible that I had you know, dreams of being something more like a, an artist or, you know, uh, something more creative. But I think the earliest documentation we have <laughs> is that I wanted to be a lawyer. 
Wow. And then, of course, and this, I mean, I always find it fascinating, right? Because there's something about it. There's something about being a lawyer in your case, because your mom is a lawyer, but also like in my case, doctor, why did I want to be a doctor? Because I wanted to help people because mm -hmm. I that's true, that, right? Yes. And yes. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That sense of duty, that sense of wanting to help. Definitely. Definitely also had that um, in, ingrained in me at a very young age. That sounds like it. And so were you a good student? Like, was your report card that your mom shared? Was that a, a good report card? <laughs> Actually, I don't think it was a report card. It was a yearbook snapshot. But my report card was, yeah, straight A's, A pluses across the board throughout my entire life. Yeah. Really high GPA, was very studious, did my homework around the clock. You know, um, always wanted to be in good standing with my teachers and my parents. So I was like top of class kind of girl. Um, you know, sitting in the front row, raising my hand. I love to learn too. And so I, I, you know, I was, it's interesting talking to people and their experiences. I happen to be lucky that whatever educational system and how it was designed with all its structure, somehow I was able to fit into that and assimilate into that like really well, but there are some people, some kids who can't, you know, and they don't, it doesn't work for them. And they end up being called dumb or they end up being, you know, diagnosed with ADHD or whatever. And that was not my case. I was the opposite. I was like, I can play this system and I can win it. No problem. Right. Right. I think that that's um, that speaks to probably having a lot of motivation on some level to mm -hmm. do so. Yeah. So as you got older, of course, and you went to college and you know, what were you thinking back then? What were some of the events going on in your life? Um, because I tend to find that in talking to people, there's always events that happen that tend to put us on a different path, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's some personal crisis or, you know, something where we just hit this roadblock and we're like, I can't do this. Like, was there anything that happened for you around that time? Yeah, for me, I would say it would be my early twenties. Like I left the system, the educational system, and I was you know, pushed into the work world and it was like, okay, now go get a job. And I remember feeling that was off and going into a cubicle and working at a nine to five. It was my first job out of college and looking in the mirror and I was wearing a blazer with, you know, heavy itchy blazer with black pants. And I was looking at myself in the elevator mirrors and I was like, I'm wearing a costume. I couldn't recognize myself and so i had a very um interesting kind of internal moment or shift at that point i had lost weight i had uh, my skin had broken out i was going to therapy for the first time and i think i was just having a very deep questioning around what am i here to do what what am i really here to do um i i didn't understand what my contribution to the world was and it, it and it unsettled me and i think that's probably having to do with age, but also because I had been such a good girl growing up, you know, had done all the right things, followed the rules, had studied what my parents wanted me to study and what the world wanted me to study, and then came out, got the job that was secure in Washington, DC. And it was like, this isn't working. That's always, I think, a big sign, by the way, especially when we've always tried to follow the rules and then you find the rules aren't working for you. Yeah, and I, I've interviewed, as you know, I've interviewed so many women on, on my podcast, uh, on the heroin podcast, and I've noticed this exact same phenomenon 
whether it's women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or beyond, they hit a breaking point uh, where they realize uh, this program that I've been on, this default program, this this train that I've just embarked on, it's I got to get off. It's not my body doesn't like this my soul doesn't like this my nothing about this feels good anymore and and we hit that breaking point and usually that looks like what they say is the dark night of the soul and the in the hero's journey or heroine's journey and and i think that we have to move through that and if anyone who's listening is going through that right now just know that there it's a good thing to be going through that because it means transformation is close by for you i think a lot of people struggle with that i mean i've gone through it quite a few times. Um, it's been a long time, thankfully. I think I'm I think I'm done with those. Um, but the point is that I think a lot of us are resistant because we don't realize how change comes. You know, change doesn't come in a package that we know. It comes mm -hmm. in a package that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, a lot of resistance to that. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, you know, it's about really being open to what that's going to be. But what I want to point out is you were kind of young to be going through that yeah it's interesting yes i was young to be going through that and i i'm just i think i had a i think my parents so there's a bit of, of a backstory which is around when i was 13 my dad started meditating and he started giving me books by eckhart tolle by the time i was 15. so i had like a i started having philosophical and spiritual questions as a teenager. And I think those followed me into my early 20s. So I think I've always been a spiritual person. And so as a result, I think I was never someone who could just go with it. You know, eventually that would crack and it cracked early for me. Um, yeah, I would say that that's probably why it happened so early. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, mo because most people I'm thinking, you know, you're in your early 20s and you're like getting in the workforce. It's like, OK, I just have to get used to this. This is just yeah, what it's like yeah. to be in the workforce. Yeah, maybe there's no awareness or there's just like, OK, this is what I you know need to do. And then as, the, as there's a maturation process, then you realize, OK, is this what I need to do? But I think I think I really do think that my parents influenced me very early on in yeah. that way in a good way so in some ways because they were immigrants they were there was this pressure to like choose a conventional path be economically stable be reasonable be logical um and at the same time my parents were also kind of sneaky rebels in their own right they had left their country they had left catholicism behind to some degree so there was something there it sounds like it i think that's great so um yeah my dad was an immigrant too and i would say that there's something i don't know there's something about it when you move to another country and it's completely different than what you're used to and how you learn i don't want to say to survive but how you also learn to thrive and you know and what yes. that means yeah i think daughters and sons of immigrants children of immigrants have a very specific psyche and psychological profile because the narrative of your parents struggle you're born into that you know you're born into a backstory that your parents have and right. they're telling you oh my god i came over by plane or boat or whatever and it was arduous and it was difficult and a lot of sacrifices were made so you're listening to that narrative from a very young age and it's kind of shaping you because you're thinking oh my god 
how do I repay them for this sacrifice? You know, when I talk to a lot of daughters of immigrants who are, have a lot of this good girl archetype, there is a sense of obligation, duty to the parents, which to some degree is very honorable, but it can hold us back as well, because then we are not doing what we want to do. We are doing what we feel we must do in order to repay our parents. That's true. It's interesting. Um, I was just thinking about how a lot of this is changing too at this point because mm-hmm. um, you know the world population as far as people getting older and then the young people you know that's changing where they think it's going to be almost fifty percent by I don't know if it's two thousand and thirty or two thousand fifty but um, you know people over the age of fifty and so they were talking about like in with filial I think it's called filial piety or something like that mm-hmm. yeah filial piety yes yeah. Mm-hmm you know, where um, they have that sense of responsibility to parents. And that's not necessarily what's happening because there's been such a low birth rate in certain countries. So a lot of this is changing and growing because both men and women are working, not just the guy is working, but mm-hmm. the woman is working too. Yeah. Yeah. Caregiving is going to have to be shared amongst men and women, male and female siblings. <laughs> have yes. to take care of parents now. Yes. Not just so, the women. <laughs> no, it's not. Absolutely. And, you know, thank, thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, okay, so you're at this point and you're at this job and you're like, this job isn't working for me. You're in therapy. All these things are happening. So what was your next step? What was your next move? Well, I quit my job and I was terrified of having that conversation with my boss. It's interesting because in my book, Break the Good Girl Myth, in the myth of harmony, I know we'll get into the good girl myths, but I had this whole thing about having difficult conversations and how important it is. And I just remember being terrified of having that difficult conversation with my boss where I've only been a year into this job and I have to tell this guy who I want his approval so desperately and I don't want to disappoint him that I'm leaving this job because it doesn't feel right. And so I'm crying, you know. I I think I cried when I told him and everything. And he was very gracious. He was fine. He understood. He let me go. And um, let me go. I mean, I left. I was like, I'm out of here. But um, but I think that that was, you know, a pivotal thing. And and then I, I basically moved out to California and I knew I wanted to be out west. I always felt the pull. To, to, I don't know, I was in Washington, D.C. It's very different culture and di- very different preoccupations in Washington, D.C. compared to California. And I moved out to California and ended up, interestingly enough, going into a very similar job. And I think it's always interesting when I bring up epiphanies and change because I, I, I like to highlight that it's quite messy and it's a process. And it's like when you're in a relationship Um, whether, you know, sometimes you break up and then you make up (laughs) and then it's kind of a spiral. It's not like a overnight break or change, but it's actually something that you revisit. Like when you're breaking an addiction, right? You have relapses. Basically I relapsed had a work relapse and I ended up going into working at the Stanford medical school, which was very prestigious, gave me a lot of opportunities and introduced me to the world of Stanford and Silicon Valley and opened my mind in so many ways but the day-to-day job was quite boring to me, to someone else, it could have been very exciting, but to me, it was boring. It was crunching data. Um, At that time, I thought maybe I wanted to be a neuroscientist. And and, uh, so I was doing fMRI research with a really, really famous Stanford professor and everything. And um, 
And then I, I hit the same point and I had the same difficult conversation <laughs> and I cried again. <laughs> you know, so I went yeah. back through one more time and then I finally quit. And then, and then, um, and then I started a, a process of deconditioning, which I'm happy to go through with you because I'm sure you're, you're curious about that. So that's interesting too, how, you know, you find yourself there and it's like, what is different actually? Like, I know whenever I've repeated anything, I'll think, oh, this is different because on the outside it looks different, but actually the inner workings are the same, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, where we're just the common denominator in the choices that we keep making. And so yeah. it sounds like that was what it was for you. And so what happened after, you know, this epiphany of, oh gosh, here I am. <laughs> Here I am doing the same thing again. What did you do after that? So I quit and I ended up going to a festival social experiment out in the desert, also known as Burning Man. And many people in San Francisco Bay Area go to this uh, gathering. And do you think your audience would be familiar with Burning Man or should I explain I think it? A lot of, I think a lot of people know what Burning Man is. Okay. Yeah, I think some people have their concepts of what it is and then what it really is is a different thing, but it's basically a festival where, um, where you have certain principles like uh, radical self-expression, gifting, there's no money um, and creativity. And so it was, um, it was a space for me that was outside of any dominant it was outside of the dominant culture it was counterculture you could call it and at least some people would debate that now as to whether it really is counterculture now has it just been like a consumerist thing but um that was huge for me huge 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 because i realized i had a very specific awakening experience um in that festival and that where I just realized, oh my God, I'm here to guide others. I'm here to be a teacher. I'm here to support women, particularly women. I realized I really got in touch with my femininity and my feminine, feminine expression and had an aha I realized, wow, I've been suppressing that for so many years because I was afraid of it because the culture told me and the society and patriarchy told me it's not good to to be powerful and a woman and all these things and so there was a process where i basically woke up and realized i'm here to to um support women in their own journeys and their expression and their creative confidence which is the work i do today so that was a very pivotal pivotal experience but again there are multiple other experiences that compounded and added on to that insight. That's what I usually find. I mean, it's never just all of a sudden a light bulb, because I, I want to always be clear about this. I don't think a light bulb ever goes off and the whole path is ever laid out for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people look for that a lot, like that magic bullet of all of a sudden, I'm going to know what I'm here to do. All of a sudden, I'm going to know the path to take to do it. And I just don't know who that actually happens for, because mm -hmm. I feel like there's always several doors that we knock on along the path. And it's do we go through that door or do we go back where we've been or do we take, you know, a right and we go in a different direction because we don't know. We yeah. know, you know, like that feeling like you had, but it's mm -hmm. like, where did that take you? You know, it's like, OK, so that took you, as you said, somewhere else. Yes. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I would say that um, I think transformation and change is a combination of two things. So these insights, you can have small, quiet insights, like the one the one that I described in my early 20s, where I'm looking in the mirror. You can have punch in the face, <laughs> punch in the gut insights or huge transformational insights. Like you go to this, you have this retreat or you do this experience and it's like, whoa, it's really mind expanding, right? So you can have these kinds of um, jumps in your consciousness. So you have insights, but then you need to pair those. You need to pair those insights with uh, smart experimentation and action. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I'm so passionate about teaching women now in my work and my uh, leadership program Ignite is how do we take our ideas and experiment with them and bring them into form because so many of us have ideas that we don't want. We don't know how to manifest. We don't know how to bring them to life. We sit right. on them for weeks, months, years. It's like, well, there's a method. You can prototype them and you can experiment because the insight of like, oh, I want to be a teacher or guide is not enough. You actually need to then put it into motion. What most women and girls do, especially if they have good girl conditioning, is they seek accreditation, they seek training, they seek certification, which I think is limited to some extent. I'm actually a big fan of learn by doing. I think there's only so many certifications one can stack. Eventually you need to actually do the work. So if you want to be a coach and you already have a therapy degree, like just start coaching. Like you don't need to get the 500 hour, like whatever, da, 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 like seal of approval from some institution who's going to hand you a formula. Like that's not what I believe, but I know that people are different, but I feel like mm -hmm. one of the ways we fall into the good girl myth of rules, which is my number one, first good girl myth I tackle in the book is, um, is one of the ways that manifests is through seeking training and continual seeking of training because we never feel ready. Right. That's very true. Um, a lot of my clients that I see uh, are overachievers. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I had a client at one point who had three master's degrees and she's like, maybe it's just, I need to go get the PhD. And I'm like, no, maybe it's not because <laughs> I've always been the rule breaker. I'm always the rebel. I'm like, you know, I became a coach and I look at the accreditation as an example because people will say, oh, are you accredited? And it's like, well, there's really no legal body that's running yeah, that. There it's is no. Yeah, it's a self-appointed organization. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's, it is. What is a legal body? I mean, no, I'm kidding. But like, yeah. but yes, it is your, like you point out and we give that, we give that system authority, right? It's like, yes. with the good girl myth of rules, the first, the first myth, the one thing like for all each of the good girl myths, there are five of them that I break down in the book. Each one has a power we need to reclaim. When we break the good girl myth of rules, the power we're reclaiming is self-authority purpose, because we're no longer looking towards external authority figures and institutions and people and organizations to give us that seal of approval and that permission slip, right? We're saying, hey, I'm going to do this now. Um, and so I, I, I'm a big, big fan of self-appointing. <laughs> I think more women need to self-appoint. I think that's interesting too. <clears throat> so my question is, 
how or what were your experiences that made you realize that you could actually do this because you were a good girl so there had mm -hmm. to be something in there yeah. that said hey wait a minute i don't have to do it this way yeah so i ended up going um after that my um i ended up going to get my master's in design i had never studied anything creative so to get my master's in in learning design and tech i was like whoa this is going to be interesting and i was so in love with with being on campus um it's a beautiful place and so so i went ahead and and took what was funny about it was it had a sort of they had this sort of like make your own curriculum and i really liked that i was able to take classes in art and traditional design design thinking and that really, really helped me um, expand my mind and realize that that creative confidence comes from doing and particularly learning at the Stanford Design School because learning design thinking was revolutionary for me. Um, being a perfectionist and being someone who would stall action um, if I was afraid, you know, this idea of, or if I would just nitpick at something forever or wouldn't show myself because it wasn't like perfect you know it was like getting over that and starting to to make things quickly and making to think instead of thinking to make that was one of the mantras another mantra they had was don't be precious which is one that i use a lot now it just built so much creative confidence in me that when i came out of that that's when i was like okay i'm, I'm i know i want to support women and I know I had this experience at Burning Man. I have this master's degree. Uh, I think coaching is it, but I don't necessarily want to go get a certification. I just paid thousands of dollars for my master's degree. So I'm just going to start coaching. And, and then it went from there. Wow. I think that's great. And it's so funny because I think that, at least in my own path to where you start off, you know, I've been a coach for 13 years. So you know, you start off in one place and then it's interesting how that also evolves and changes and grows mm -hmm. because I think any coach worth their salt, you're always changing and you're always growing. And so, you know, from where you started to where you are now, what have been some of the biggest moments in your coaching career? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I would say I had so in parallel of being a coach i'm also a creative and designer so that's been interesting because i've had these really big creative projects that have really lifted off my career the mm -hmm. first is the heroin podcast i started it four or five years ago when serial first came out so podcasting was like kind of on an upswing but it wasn't as popular as it is today and so um the heroin podcast was a real big inflection point for me. I was able to interview, I remember the first day I pitched Eileen Fisher, who was the, uh, she's a fashion designer and icon really. Um, I pitched her to come on and uh, she said yes. And then things snowballed from there and I was able to get really incredible guests on. I ended up interviewing my literary heroine, Isabella Allende, and um, also interviewed Esther Perel, who I, deeply admire for her work and her thought leadership. And so 
you know, all of that happened because I started this thing. And so, and that actually spurred the book deal and then allowed me to um, get my publishing deal with Harper One and Harper Collins. And the book was the second inflection point. So I think as much as, you know, it's interesting having these labels on ourselves, like, you know, I, I don't really think it's just, if I like the ING, you know, I do coaching, I do writing, I do podcasting. I'm more into the yeah. ING than the actual identity labels. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I would say those were the two major ones, the podcast and the book. And they, and they, um, they're like my creative babies, you know, <laughs> I'm like, there is so big to push out. And now with my ignite leadership program, that's what I help other women do. I help midwife their creative babies. Like, what do you want to create? Do you want to start a podcast? Do you want to write a book? Do you want to launch a business? Do you want to create a community resource or online toolkit? Like, what do you want to do? Um, what do you want to offer the world? Let's go, let's use design thinking. Let's break our good girl myths and go from A to B and get it out there. That's pretty exciting. So tell us a little bit about what Ignite is because we mentioned at the beginning and you just brought it up again. And I'm sure my audience would like to know a little bit more like besides that, like how do women find it or how are women chosen to be in it? And what, mm -hmm. what is it? Sure. So you can find out about Ignite by going to my website mahomolfino.com and you can click on uh the ignite on the navigation there's also a shortcut which is majo.co maho.co slash ignite um and you can find out more basically it's an eight-week program and it's for the a woman who feels like she's meant for something more who's working full-time and wants to start something on the side whether it's a creative business or project and maybe she doesn't quite know what that is yet but she knows she's meant to do something more she wants to leave behind a bigger legacy than what she's doing through her main full-time work and so ignite helps you do that in eight weeks and and it's interesting it's a fast and intense experience and people kind of are surprised by that because you'll be sitting on an idea for years maybe and it's like well how do you mean you're going to start it in eight weeks but part of what makes it work is a very strong accountability container. So this is not a self-guided program. There are deadlines and you have to show up to calls. And, and so it's a commitment to your creative dream. It's a commitment to yourself um, and to the process. And, uh, and if you show up, you'll be amazed. You'll actually, actually bring the idea into form. And at the end of the, uh, so you run three prototypes in the program at the end of the program you do a final demo and so it's also a process of being vulnerable and being seen and heard in a way that maybe you haven't been in your creative purpose and so it's scary you know when women talk to me about working with me they're like maha i want to work with you i'm very excited but i'm also kind of scared i'm like it's normal to feel that excitement but terrifying feeling that's actually that's good. You want to chase that feeling because we spend so much time running away from that feeling or trying to numb it out. That's actually what we need to, to lean into to get to the next level. Right, right. I think that's great. I think that's, um, like you said, where people can sit on things for years and then they haven't done anything with it. And then to walk in and do something in eight weeks is pretty remarkable. 
Yeah, it's called, you know, Parkinson's law. It's like things take as long as you give them. So if I tell you, um, um, Tracy, I'm going to give you uh, a whole year to write your book, you're going to fill up that year. If I tell you, hey, Tracy, you only have three months, you know, and then at the end of it, you get $1 billion or something. Right. Like right. you will make it work. You'll find a way to do it in three months. If I tell you, you have a month, you'll do it. Will you get it done perfectly? No. So you gotta, you gotta put perfectionism on the rocks. You know, you gotta, yeah, but, but you'll get it done. And in, in, in fact, some people might say you do it better than if you had a whole year, uh, because the constraint might bring you into focus. Right. So, so I'm a big fan of constraints mm -hmm. around time, especially mm -hmm. it's something we use a lot in design thinking. We say, Hey, how do you create a prototype of an idea? You add a constraint. And I break that down in the chapter in the book on the myth of perfection. I bring it down. I break it down. Like if you have, if you want to create a prototype, you have to embrace these constraints, materials, time, right? Those are the two major ones. So, because in our, our mind likes to build things up. Our mind likes to think we need to do this crazy orchestration of something. Let's say you want to start a podcast. And so in your mind, you think, well, I need to buy the equipment. I need to rent the studio room. I need to, you know, I need to do the podcast training online. And so your, your mind builds up a very big bar and it just keeps raising the bar. And that's a really great way to never do the podcast um, versus with prototypes. It's like, well, let's constrain it. You only have your voice memo. You only have a week. <laughs> right. Who are you going to interview first? Right. Right. So prototyping, you constrain it and you get it done. And so Ignite is a fiery program. It's an activating thing. It's, you know, some programs are more about self-compassion and self-care. And I believe in that work. I'm so into that work as well. That's not what Ignite is. Um, Ignite is very much about taking action. That sounds like it. And I love that. I mean, I think that's great. And I think if there's anybody out there who has been, you know, looking at what am I going to do because I've been thinking about this forever and I haven't done anything, I think that you should absolutely look this up. So, um, so I'd love it if you could share, you know, a few things about your book and any tips or, you know, if you want to go through the myths before we wrap up, that would be great because I think that the audience is listening and going, okay, tell me more, tell me more. So please. Sure. So the book is called Break the Good Girl Myth, <clears throat> How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power, and Design a More Purposeful Life. And in it, I basically go through um, how we've been socialized to be good as women instead of powerful. And, and I highlight three, uh, sorry, five self-sabotaging myths self-sabotaging tendencies that we've inherited as little girls and that have followed us into adulthood. So we need to unlearn them. The first is the myth of rules. The second is perfection. Third is logic. Then it's harmony. And then the fifth is sacrifice. And so like I was mentioning before, um, I go into very, very deep um, analysis of each myth what it sounds like, what it looks like, the main strategy for approval and powers you give up. And so if you're someone who is thinking, gosh, you know, I think I might have some of these good girl tendencies. Maybe, maybe you do identify as a good girl, or maybe you don't, it doesn't matter because I have found women who are like, well, I haven't been, I didn't grow up as a good girl, but then they read the five good girl myths. So like, okay, no, I see myself in 
logic or I see myself in sacrifice. I see that I have some remnants of these myths inside of me. And it's just, we just need to do a little cleaning up. <laughs> just need to do a little cleaning up. And um, yeah, and then for each myth, I have different tools that I suggest based on my background in design thinking, which I touched on in this interview, but also mindfulness, yoga, spirituality, and tie, tying that together to support you in breaking that myth. That's awesome. I think that's great. Um, and I agree with all of those topics because mm -hmm. I tend to find that when I coach people, I actually have a lot of uh, people that are perfectionists and people pleasers in the audience. So, mm -hmm. and myself being a recovering one. So know that well. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, they go to your website, right? Yeah. In terms of the book, yes, the book goes to my website. There's a great easy URL, goodgirlmyth.com. So goodgirlmyth.com will take you to the book's webpage, which lives on my website. And then once you go to my website, you can explore. I have a free quiz. I have free meditations. I have the Ignite program on it. You can just have a field day. I have the heroin podcast, <laughs> all, the, all the little projects that I've done throughout the years. That's awesome. And your podcast sounds like it's amazing. So that is wonderful. And then I'm assuming you have programs that you work with people. Do you still work with people as a coach or is it just through the Ignite program? Like, how does that work? Currently it's through the Ignite program. So you can apply. Uh, that's how I'm, I'm currently working with women. I had a one-on-one -on -one practice for many years and I just found that there's something about a group container that really, really gets results that I just couldn't recreate that energy. There's something about when a group of women come together and there's community and accountability and mirroring and reflecting that you just really see the transformation. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. So <laughs> I have really enjoyed listening to, you know, what you've imparted upon us today, which is a lot of wisdom in terms of, I think, knowing yourself and also that the limitations that you start off with don't, and I'm talking about the mental limitations that you start off with, don't have to remain there, that you can mm -hmm. actually create the life that you want that feels good to you. Absolutely. That's it. Awesome. You summed it up. <laughs> thank you, Tracy. <laughs> you are so welcome. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in also. And my dog has been sleeping here. So if you've heard grunts and snores or anything, <laughs> He's a six-month-old puppy, so he's, Aww, uh, he's been laying there. Yeah, what a sweetie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would show you guys, but he's uh, he's on the floor. But um, anyways, thank you, Maho, for coming. And um, again, I think that everybody who's listening, if you want to find out more, please go to the URL. Um, it was thegoodgirlmyth.com. Yeah, goodgirlmyth.com. Mm -hmm. And then the other, because I know you also have the short in the maho.co uh, slash ignite. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I know. That's I'm actually like, pretty good memory. I'm like <laughs> impressed you remembered that. I know. I'm impressed too. No. <laughs> Anyways, thank you everybody for tuning in. And I will be back again with another expert. Take care. Bye bye. For more information about Tracy and her programs and to set up a discovery session, email happiness at tracycrossley.com. That's happiness at tracycrossley.com or go to the website for more information. And thank you for tuning in to Moving On 